Guys, uh, we want to back up before we look at Acts 6, 8. We want to look back at Acts 6, 1 through 7. We didn't finish uh, our study last time. I just quickly want to kind of fill in the blanks. But in filling in the blanks, there's some important points we need to consider. And I want to look at those with you. We, we're looking at God's order in Acts 6, 1 through 7. And we saw two primary points. First of all, we saw in, in the first verse, that successful evangelism disturbs the church's order, or we should say it often disturbs the church's order. We start bringing people into the church who didn't fit our microculture, who weren't from our religious backgrounds, and all of a sudden you've got all these different assumptions about how things are supposed to operate. You've got people with commitments to different family units and different cultures. It gets real messy, and that's exactly the way it's supposed to be. But then we saw in verses 2 through 7 that successful leadership restores the church's order, by the power of the gospel, we begin to apply love and truth, the mercy of Jesus Christ, and we begin to find ourselves uniting around different things than we used to unite around. We used to unite around our common uh, occupational objectives or our common family backgrounds or a common ethnic group or some such thing. Now we find our essence together as our common love of Jesus Christ, His love for us and our love for Him. And leadership helps to apply the essence of the gospel to a community group to bring unity around Christ Himself. Now, the first thing we saw leaders do is that they, make, they keep the main thing the main thing. And that's exactly what the apostles did. They said, we cannot be distracted by uh, waiting tables uh, away from the ministry of prayer and the Word. They knew what their most important task was. We need, need some men to help us keep our focus on the ministry of prayer and the Word. And every church and every small group and really every life needs to be led that way, Put the, keep the main thing the main thing. Secondly, we saw that they would maintain high standards for leadership. So if they're going to recruit some people to help them who are going to be leaders, they need to be leaders with high character and proper gifting. We saw, first of all, they'll have good reputations. Secondly, they'll be spiritually minded people. And thirdly, they'll be discerning. And we spoke particularly how that discernment is best displayed in the family network. So if someone is a husband or a father, you can look at how he manages his household, and there you can best see how he would manage relationships within the household of the church. That's the reason that our home management is so important. We're serving other people that need our love and direction. We're also working out the way in which we're going to lead in the broader community. And we saw, especially last time, I think, just if we just take daughters as an example, how important it is for men in homes to manage those relationships well with our daughters and with our, no matter what age they are. Then we, we, that's where we stopped. So let's pick back up with verse 3b and verse 6, and let's see this, that these same leaders not only keep the main thing the main thing and maintain high standards for leadership, but they empower other leaders. You'll notice effective leaders empower other leaders. A leader is not just a man who takes one task or one job and performs it. A leader is a man who's, who, who multiplies, whose ministry is contagious. And the same way in your business as well as in the church, that if you're a real leader, you're going to, have, you're going to be multiplying people around you. You remember Collins' uh, famous book on From Good to Great, and he shows that a level five leader is not a man with a, a, a genius with a thousand assistants. That's a level four leader, a genius with a thousand assistants. 
A level five leader is usually a very humble, sort of quiet sort of person who sits in the back, you know. But he's surrounded by multiplying leaders. And that's the difference between great leadership and adequate leadership. And here we, we see some great leadership. Uh, these, these apostles are calling in men who themselves are going to prove to be outstanding leaders themselves. And those leaders are empowered to do a task. And you can't have powerful people around you who are doing leadership jobs if you're constantly micromanaging them, if you're constantly telling them exactly how to run their, their business. No, you explain the field of responsibility to them, give them the resources that they need to do it, put in a feedback loop so that there's real accountability so you're not just uh, abandoning them, but you're actually deputizing them and delegating to them, which means that you're also holding them accountable, but in the broader sense that leaders ought to be held accountable. That's exactly what these men did. And then fourthly, in verse 5, we see that they not only empower other leaders, but they include diverse leaders. Now here's what's really interesting about the tactics that these leaders used. They had a dispute, you remember, between the Hebraic-speaking Jewish people and the Greek-speaking Jewish women, widows, over the distribution of daily supplies. Obviously, the Greek-speaking women were in the minority. Please look at the names of the first deacons. They're almost all Greek names. Interesting, isn't it? These Jewish men, largely Jewish apostles, chose Greek-speaking deacons to serve the minority who were being ignored in the daily distribution. And gentlemen, I suggest this is ingenious. And it ought to happen more often in the church. When we see groups from different minority backgrounds coming into our church, we need immediately to be looking for how we can empower leaders from within those groups so that the minorities are actually overrepresented. That's exactly what these men do. They did. They overrepresented the minority group. They trusted the people who loved the Lord Jesus Christ to be just and fair. And they knew that the complaining minority now would not question the integrity of their leaders because they were coming from their own Grecian-speaking group. And so as much as at times uh, you, you may doubt whether the uh, civil government should use affirmative action, let there be no doubt that the church always uses affirmative action. It's a matter of justice and a matter of seeking to provide for the marginalized and those who are left out. So uh, I'm not a politician. I'm not an expert on public policy, so I don't know about all that stuff. But here's what I know about the church. We're supposed to be modeling how we will bend over backwards to help folks get assimilated into this chaotic thing called the church. That's exactly what these leaders did. They included diverse leaders and empowered them to make decisions. It's amazing when you look at it. Then in verse 7... Let's notice what happens. They end up advancing the kingdom. And that's what leaders do. Leaders always have their eye on two things. Number one, what did the Lord tell us to do? And He told us to be men of prayer and the Word. That's what the apostles knew they were supposed to do. That was their business. So they knew what their business was. Second thing they stay focused on is what their objective is. And they knew what their objective was. Let's get the word out to as many people as we can to lead them to Christ and include them in the church. Let's expand the kingdom. And you'll see what happens in verse 7. The word of God continued to increase. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests. The priests. 
became obedient to the faith. They could not withstand the wisdom and the power of God's Spirit working through Spirit-filled leaders because of the social justice that was expressed, because of the truth of the gospel that was expressed, in every way they were exemplary, you could not resist the reality that these were men of God. And many of the priests who were looking for Messiah, they knew, you know what, we found the community of the Messiah. And they gave their hearts to Jesus Christ. Powerful outcome. So what you see happening then, once again, Satan is seeking now not only to destroy the church from the outside, He tries to destroy it from the inside through division, complaining, bickering, injustices. You see how the leaders respond with clarity to resolve the issue, to bring justice to the church, and to move the church forward. So look what happens when Satan opposes the church. We get the wonderful office of deacons out of it. So the deacons, you can know that the devil gave us this office. I'm just teasing The Lord gave us this office as a response to an attack from the devil himself. And if you're a deacon, would you please remember what your office is there for? It's there to bring justice and care and compassion and order to the church to withstand the onslaughts of the evil one himself. And we got your office because... Competent leaders under the power of the Spirit trusted the Lord to bring order to His church. So once again, you'll see how this happens over and over again in church history. We're going to see it again in the next chapter and the chapter after that, where when the devil tries his worst, the church responds and gains from our encounter with the evil one. So as as dark as it is to see how the devil tries to separate and divide and attack, as dark as that is, and some of you have been in situations where you could... Feel His darkness. Never fear. The work of the Lord is to take us right through that darkness. We may lose a few bodies, but He's going to take us through that darkness and bring us out to a place of even more radiant light. That's what we learn in Acts, the first part of Acts chapter 6. Now let's turn from there to Acts 6, 8. And now we're going to see what happens when deacons begin to preach. <laughs> and deacons, let me tell you, if you're a deacon... Our, our first one here we're going to get a good look at. He's a mighty preacher. So when we're told that deacons work primarily with their hands and their feet, that doesn't mean that they don't know how to talk. There have been some powerful preachers who are deacons, and Stephen was one of them. Well, what I'd like for us to do is look at this, because here we're going to see how the devil now viciously attacks. I mean, the attacks just ramp up. We've already seen Peter and John attacked and put into prison, threatened, whipped, and now we're going to see someone actually put to death for the gospel. So Satan is elevating the temperature of what he's doing. But I want you to notice, gentlemen, the the same truth holds true, that just as God has turned everything around that Satan tried to do and made the church stronger for it and used it to expand the kingdom, he's going to do the same thing when Satan kills one of us. Now remember what Jesus said, don't fear the devil. All he can do is kill your body. Fear God who can kill your body, and after he's killed you, he can throw you into hell. Satan can't throw you into hell. So we fear God alone. We don't worry about our bodies. Why? Because we believe in the resurrection. So you can take us out now, but we're coming back, and we're coming back more gloriously than you took us out. So with the chaos you try to 
perform world, there's going to be more order and more beauty that comes back. That's what we're going to see in this text. And we're going to see then that how, what charges were brought against Stephen. We're going to see the process that was used against him. We're going to see his character and his performance when he faced this opposition. We're going to see how he was put to death, and then we're going to see what the Lord did with that death. It's an amazing story. We've got a lot of text to read, and I might skip around a little bit, but let's begin by looking at verses 8 through 15. And here we're going to see that Christ's witnesses must face opposition. That's, that's Roman numeral number one. Christ's witnesses must face opposition. Roman numeral number one. So you cannot be a faithful witness for Jesus Christ, gentlemen, without facing opposition. And all you have to do is just turn on CNN when you have three or four representatives to express different religious views. And if one of them is an evangelical, just watch it. Last time I saw one of those on CNN, there was one evangelical, I think it was uh, John MacArthur, who can be outspoken and and controversial anyway. But nonetheless, I think John behaved himself in that interview, except for telling the truth. That's where he didn't behave himself. And then you had Deepak Chopra there. You had a, a, a fairly liberal priest. And then there was a Muslim. And it was amazing how before that interview had concluded, you had Larry King and three interviewees all teamed up against one little evangelical over here in the corner. (laughs) It's amazing how that happens. And the reason is simply this. The evangelical is claiming unique, making unique claims to the truth. He's not only doing that, he is making awesome claims about the consequences of whether you believe it or not. So it's a restrictive gospel with a narrow gate, and then the consequences of missing that narrow gate are awesome, and it brings out the wrath of humanity. We're going to see it here, same thing. This Jesus that the apostles and the deacons were claiming to be the Christ means that somebody else is wrong, and they're really wrong, and they're in deep weeds. So here we'll see what happens. Let's look at uh, chapter 6, verses 8 through 15. And Stephen full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Wow. Okay, Christ's witnesses must face opposition. 
Now, uh, A, under Roman number 1, this will be verses 8 through 10, we learn this. The Christian witness is empowered. The Christian witness is empowered. When you go out to share about Jesus Christ and who He is and what He's done for you and that He is Lord over the entire universe, you don't do that in your own power. If you do, you're foolish. You must go out in the power of the Spirit. That's the reason that Jesus said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, the cover verse for all of the book of Acts, He said, And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and then you will be my witnesses. So we receive power from the Spirit who enables us to go out. And that's, ex that's exactly what Christian witnesses are. They are the Spirit-empowered tellers of the truth. And I mentioned there Luke 21, 15. That's the promise of Jesus Christ. He told His apostles that you will be given what to say. You will give wisdom that will stump the world. Look, if Jesus Christ is the embodiment of wisdom, you couldn't possibly hold the universe together intellectually without Jesus Christ. He's the core. He's the glue that keeps it all together, the Bible teaches us. So when you have Christ, you have the core of wisdom. And wisdom radiates from Him. And you're putting things together. I just remember as a new Christian at 25, the relief and the joy and the satisfaction of being able to put life together and to be able to make sense out of its various parts and be able to understand why so much evil in the world, to understand where the world is headed, to understand what my job description was as a, as a Christian salesman, to, to be able to see the meaning of the fine arts and everything in life revolves around Jesus Christ. And when you have the core, you've got the beginning of wisdom because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Then the rest of your life, you're just working things out from that core truth that ties everything together. Now, there are some very bright people who have ways of tying the world together. And they do an ingenious job of trying to connect all the dots, but they're missing the core. And for that reason, their dots are not always connected correctly. And they'll never get them connected correctly. They'll conjecture and try their best. But if you don't have the center, you can't get the rest of the story. And that's exactly uh, what Stephen had. Uh, he, he was empowered with wisdom. And gentlemen, you know, when Jesus led the Gadarene demoniac uh, to himself, exorcised 6,000 demons out of this man, and he was no longer naked with chains on his arms and legs, screaming at the top of his lungs, but he was clothed in his right mind, seated at the feet of Jesus Christ. What a picture of sanity and of freedom. And then Jesus sent him out. He said, go, evangelize your friends and your family. Go tell those. And what was he supposed to tell? Not the five points of Calvinism, not the Westminster Confession of Faith, not the Baptist faith and message. He wasn't supposed to give a theology lesson. You know, he hadn't been to Moody Bible Institute or anything else. What's he going to do? He says, tell them what the Lord has done to you and how he has had mercy on you. That's what you're a witness of. A witness is someone who's seen something or heard something. You've observed something. And a witness is one who simply tells what he observed or what he's heard. And, and this person had a lot to talk about. You can't believe what happened to me today. <laughs> I got some clothes. I got my mind back. You know, I, I, I got my sanity back. I got love back when I met Jesus today. That was his message. And everyone who's come to him has some message. When you start telling that message 
and you tell it in such a way to glorify God, I'm telling you there's power there, there's wisdom there, and it puts the world off. But they know they're hearing wisdom. So the Christian witness is empowered. Secondly, B, verses 11 through 14, the Christian witness is opposed. I know it doesn't make any sense. You're doing the world a favor. You're telling them the truth. You're inviting them to come to know Jesus Christ. You're, you're asking them to come, to you, come with you to church, to come to your Sunday school class, your small group. You're doing it because you love them. You're doing it because it's true. And what do you get for it sometimes? Well, actually, most of the time, actually, in America, if you invite someone to church, uh, about uh, two-thirds to three-fourths of those people believe you're actually doing it as a favor to them. They may not accept your invitation. Only a third of them will accept your invitation or a fourth of them will accept your invitation. But two-thirds of them will take it as a kind gesture on your part uh, if they like you. <laughs> uh, now, only 5% of the American population will actually be hostile. If they're highly educated or have a lot of money, 10% will be highly hostile. That's what, that, I'm serious, that's what statistics show. So a lot of you deal with people who have degrees and who have money. You're going to run into a little bit more hostility, but the statistics show it's no more than actually 10%. The fact is, you just remember that 10% more than you remember the 90% who just kind of blew it off. But 10% will be hostile. The Sanhedrin were the more educated people with political power, everything to lose, and a lot of money. Okay, So we have a very hostile, settled group here. Settled hostility. So what you get is that, that 10% of the professional population all represented here, and boy, do they ever oppose the Christian witness. Look what they do. The first thing they do is to enter into theological dispute, which they did with Stephen. And they could not, verse 10, withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So what do they do next? Well, it's logical. Go to slander. <laughs> if you can't win the boxing match above the belt, hit below the belt. It works every time. You just double them right over. And that's what they're doing. Let's go from legitimate theological dispute where we can at least uh, pretend that we're searching for truth. And if we can't win that argument, just hit them below the belt and accuse them of something they didn't do. That's exactly what they do. They go to slander. And so they instigate men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words. Can you imagine Stephen doing this? Blasphemous words against Moses and God. I mean, that's like saying, Billy Graham is a blasphemer. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Of course, blas uh, uh, slanderers eventually shoot themselves in the foot because eventually you realize this stuff's impossible. But they go to slander. Now, slander doesn't actually work, so they go to violence. Now, you notice the, you notice the sequence. That's the kind of opposition you can expect. The reason that we have some interest in the state uh, and our involvement as political uh, citizens of this country is, is for a couple of reasons. One is out of love for our neighbor, we want to be sure that we have just and peaceful frameworks of doing business together as society. So we have an obligation to seek to create a society. We're the salt and the light. We're to engage in politics and in civil government and in the institutions of our community because we want them to uh, provide justice and care for the people around us. Order is a good thing. The second reason that we get involved is because if we don't protect 
uh, if we don't uh, season our public institutions, pretty soon it all collapses, and it'll go from theological dispute to slander, which is where we are now, to violence. That's, that's the sequence that civil governments will go. Look at the Roman Empire. Uh, we go from theological dispute to slander and then to violence, putting people to death. Even the famous Roman courts of law collapsed when it came to dealing with the Christian witness. So if we don't provide for justice for everybody, believe me, there'll be no justice for the Christian witness. We will be opposed and will be opposed violently. Now, you'll notice, you can't help but notice in verses 11 through 14 that the same sort of slander that was given to and about Stephen was given to and about Jesus. Now, this ought to provide some comfort for us. Uh, Jesus was criticized uh, for changing the customs of Moses, and he was criticized for criticizing the temple. You remember that Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. He was talking about his own body and the resurrection. And everybody said, oh, listen to Jesus. He just said he's going to tear down the temple. Can you imagine such a thing? The temple is the presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. The presence of the Lord. Right there in the temple. We've got the presence of the Lord. Who is this heretic who says he's going to destroy our church? That's what they did to Jesus. Completely off the rails. Totally idiotic. Totally misquoting him. Totally misinterpreting because they hated him. Misinterpretations generally flow out of hatred and contempt. That's exactly what they did to Jesus Christ. Look what they're doing to Stephen. Do you expect anything different? When someone is saying what you said about Jesus Christ or about the Christian religion or about the Bible and you get misquoted and you say, how shocking that anyone would do such a thing. (laughs) Read your Bible, buddy. I mean, good heavens. And what did Jesus say? He said, you know, rejoice and be glad so the prophets were persecuted before you. In other words, you're joining the holy band of apostles and prophets and martyrs. So don't get a martyrdom complex. You know, we're not looking to be martyred. And we don't think we're perfect like Jesus was. And we don't think we're preachers like Stephen was. But after all, we are part of the band. And we should expect some of the same behavior. When you get into the public arena with people who don't want to have to deal with the implications of the fact that we crucified Jesus Christ. I don't want to have to deal with those implications, and you're making me deal with them, and therefore I don't like you, and therefore I'm going to slander you and oppose you, and if I, if I have enough power, I'm going to do violence against you. That's the way it goes, and it always will. Now, thirdly, C, verse 15. Notice that the Christian witness is blessed. Please don't leave this verse off. Verse 15, gazing at him, all who sat on the council, that is, nobody could miss it. They saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen wasn't a sadomasochist. He didn't love being threatened with his life. He didn't like that. But you know what he loved? He loved being obedient to Jesus Christ. He loved having Christ's favor rest upon him. He loved bringing pleasure to the Father no matter what it cost him. That was his chief delight. And he radiated. Now the reason Luke mentions it is because you remember that with respect to Moses, Moses went up the mountain and came down and had to cover his face because it was radiating. 
And what Luke is saying is that, oh, contraire, hop along, instead of his undermining Moses, he was delivering the same message as Moses. He was carrying the message that Moses carried, that there's a rock, there is a prophet coming after me who is greater than I am, says Moses. And Stephen was testifying to him. And he shared the same radiance that Moses had. And brother, so do you. When you enter into the message of Moses, which is the very end of the law and the point of the whole law of Moses is the coming of the Messiah. When you honor Him, Christ, then you are in the tradition of Moses. And the ones who are out of the tradition of Moses are the ones who reject the Messiah. That's what Stephen is saying. That's eventually what gets him killed. The Christian message got him killed. And the Christian message is that those who love Moses and the law of Moses will delight themselves in Jesus Christ, no exceptions. If you don't delight yourself in Jesus Christ, you are opposing Moses. Now, if we look at chapter 7, you get it uh, big time here. Uh, Now, we're not going to take time to read this entire message, and I'm sorry about that. I would love to, primarily just to have the effect of this sermon. And this sermon has affected people in different ways. (laughs) Some liberal scholars have said, you know why Stephen got stoned? This is the longest boring sermon I've ever heard in my life. At the end of which sermon, he criticized the the preachers for being the whole problem in the church. So what do you expect to happen to him? A long, boring sermon, and the main point is, you're the the miscreants. Well, Stott, as you know, if you read him, takes issue with that. So do I. Stephen takes the criticism that's been lodged against him, that he's against the temple, that the Christian message is against the temple. And secondly, he's contrary to the law of Moses. Now, what he's doing in this sermon is very carefully, very ingeniously taking them through their own history and showing them the presence of God with His people even when there was no temple. So the temple is not the point. The presence of God is the point. And the two are not the same. That's his point, Stephen's point. They don't know it till he gets to the end of the sermon. But when you look at this sermon, he's woven that idea throughout it. The other thing he's woven in there has to do with the law. And he brings that to a crescendo at the very end. And he's basically saying what I was uh, pointing to a moment ago. He's saying, let me tell you who the ones are who are violating the customs of Moses. Let me tell you who the ones are who hold in contempt the law that he gave us. It is yourselves. Wow. Okay, here, here you go. And he's built that up by providing a foundation in his sermon. And he brings it all together in the application at the end. Now that's, what Steve, that's his strategy. This is not a random display of Old Testament history like some of, <laughs> some of the scholars felt that I was mentioning. Like, good heavens, when will this man ever shut up? No, he, he's taking what the Sanhedrin says they value. The story of God's faithfulness to Israel. And he's taking that story... And he's showing them that what they're claiming against him is actually true of themselves. And gentlemen, I would say this to you. My observation is often that those who hold the Christian message in scorn, 
and contempt often ascribe to it the very things that are in their own lives. I've often seen this. Now, I'm no psychologist, so this is an amateur conjecture. But it sure seems to me that often they project onto the Christian community, the evangelical community, what is in their own hearts. In other words, if I, non-Christian, were saying the things that you're saying, these would be my motives, and therefore those have to be your motives. I observe this all the time. So they actually project their own stuff onto the Christian witness. It's exactly what happens to Stephen. Their stuff is what they're claiming that he has. Now let's look at how he does this message. What we're going to see, the overall thrust of this, is that Christ's witness must tell the story. That's, that's Roman numeral 2. Christ's witnesses must tell the story. Now Stephen's going to tell the story, the, the gospel story. But he, like every time we tell the gospel story, we tell it so that it advantages the particular people we're addressing. So if I'm talking to someone who's been widowed, who's not a Christian, my message to her will be entirely different than to the proud, self-sufficient businessman who doesn't think he needs anything. My message to him will be very different. Same gospel, but presented very differently. Now, who's Stephen talking to? Proud, self-sufficient, self-righteous religious leaders who have a vested interest in the old order and who have perverted the Bible. They know their Bibles, word for word. But they perverted its message to suit their own appetites. That's who he's talking to. So you can expect a particular type of gospel presentation. That's what we get. But whatever situation you're in, if we're witnesses, we have to tell what we're witnesses of. We've got to tell the story. As the psalmist says, let the redeemed of the Lord say so. If we've been redeemed, if we've experienced something, if we've enjoyed something, let us share what we've seen when it's appropriate. And that's what Stephen does. Now, A, in the main text of his sermon, we're going to see that God's presence, this is A under Roman numeral 2, God's presence is always with His people. God's presence is always with His people. Not just in the temple. Parenthesis, not just in the temple. That's Stephen's main point of his sermon. God's presence is with us always. Now he starts with Abraham. And you can see if you look at your Bibles in verse 2, And Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was where? In Mesopotamia. Do you think there was a temple to the Lord in Mesopotamia? That's his whole point. See how he starts? Our father Abraham. Does anybody here deny that father? Abraham's our father? Any objection here? No, no objection. Okay, fine. Let me remind you of something about Abraham. He experienced the presence of the Lord in Mesopotamia. And so can you, wherever you are, when you're a follower of Christ. Everywhere. In prison, out of prison. In the states, out of the states. In the church, out of the church. In Mesopotamia, Abraham Abram experienced him. And if you'll look at verse 6, look, look at this text where Stephen says, And God spoke to this effect, that his offspring would be what? Sojourners. He uses the word sojourners in a land belonging to others. Who would do what? Enslave them and afflict them for 400 years. You got a temple there in your slavery compound? 
Got a temple in Egypt where God told he was going to send his children. And he's Stephen is saying to the Sanhedrin, have you gentlemen lost your minds? Have you forgotten our history? Do you think that you can build a building and claim that God's going to stay right there and obey him and behave himself and stay contained in the little building you build? Do you think that's what you're doing to God, putting him in a box? That's what he's claiming here. So he starts with the story of Abraham. And then secondly, in verse 9, he moves to the story of Joseph. Number 2, Joseph, verses 9 through 19. And what I want you to observe is that in seven verses here, Stephen mentions Egypt six times. Do you think he's making a point? Look at verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But look what God did. He was, look at this, with him. God didn't say to Joseph, now you know, <clears throat> even if you get sold into slavery, you leave the Holy Land, you're out of it, buddy. I, I, I don't, I'm sorry, I, I'm, my home's over here. Uh, and I can't go with you to Egypt. No, he was with him. And what else? Verse 10, rescued him out of all of his afflictions. And what else? Gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Tell me God wasn't with Joseph. And he had no temple. And he had no residence. He was a sojourner. And his people became slaves. So he talks about Joseph. Now, verses 20 through 44, which is the major section in this long, boring sermon. He talks about Moses. Number three is Moses. And what does he say about Moses? Well, let me tell you about Moses, he says. An angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. You ever seen a bush on fire that doesn't, isn't consumed? Have you ever seen that in the temple? No, you haven't. Well, let me tell you where it happened. In the wilderness. The wilderness. The God-forsaken wilderness is where God showed up. God shows up where God forsakes. That's how great God is. He's with His people wherever they go. And we don't make gods out of temples. We don't make gods out of church buildings. We don't make gods out of traditions. God is God. He's awesome. And He goes with His people wherever they go as sojourners, even if they're in slavery. And then He shows in the story of Moses, we won't go through it, but He shows the three phases of Moses' life. He was in Egypt and God was with him. He was in his Midian, Midianite period from the ages of 40 to 80 when he was in exile out of Egypt out of fear of his life. God was with him and spoke to him in the burning bush. He goes back to Egypt. God is with him. He performs powerful miracles. He leads the people through the Red Sea, takes them to Mount Sinai and delivers the law. God is with them for 40 years in the wilderness. So in all three stages of his life, Moses had no temple. Now he had a tabernacle in the wilderness journey. But before the tabernacle, he had no temple. He had no cult, if you will, no sanctuary. The world is God's sanctuary wherever his people go. That's the point Stephen is making. It's going to sneak up on the Sadducees. You'll see in a moment. But he's basically building his case. And then fourthly, when you come to verses 45 through 50, he's talking about David and Solomon. And David wanted to build a house for the Lord. And God didn't let him because he was a man of war. And so he chose David's son, Solomon, that means peace, coming from the word shalom. Solomon, Solomon, he was enabled to build the temple. He was a man of peace. 
And Solomon said, as given to him by the Lord, and you see I quoted here, yet the Most High, look at this, does not dwell in houses made by hands. What's so interesting is to this day, the religious wars that are just eating our lunch in the world have to do with temples and lands and traditions. It's amazing. The gospel delivers us from those things. Stephen's speech is foundational to the Christian religion. So in that, in that first section of his speech, uh, where he claims that God's presence is always with his people, he is undermining the idea that the temple is the ultimate uh, essence of God. Now, in the verses 51 through 53, we're now at B on your outlines, we learn that those who reject our message are the lawbreakers. Those who reject our message are the lawbreakers. So you see, Stephen's speech is outlined according to the criticisms he's received. This is a very contextualized gospel presentation. He's addressing the concerns of the people that are talking to him. This is the reason that the best way to prepare yourself to be of use to other people is to read your Bible and to experience God. It really is. Because you, you, don't, you don't know what the questions are going to be. And so often in, in our attempts to present Christ and the gospel to others, we come assuming what their questions are. And therefore we miss most of the time. If you've got the four spiritual laws, that's great if those are the questions they have. But if those are not the questions, it doesn't happen. I, a person who just, uh, I had the pleasure of leading to Christ just uh, a, f- a few weeks ago, uh, he had some major questions about how the church deals with social justice issues, including dealing with the homosexual community. Those were his questions. So it wouldn't have done me a whole lot of good to talk about a lot of other things unless we're going to address those questions. And how do we put that together? What does the Bible say? What is, what is loving about the biblical viewpoint? What's just about the biblical viewpoint? What's healthy and he- help, hopeful and helpful about the biblical viewpoint? And how does it contrast with other viewpoints? Now, how am I going to prepare for something like that? A lifetime of reading the Bible and listening to people and experience. Immerse yourself into Christ. Immerse yourself into the Bible. And then simply share with people what you know. And when you don't know something, like happens to me every day, and every evangelistic encounter I have, there's something they want to know that I don't know. You need to be an expert on these three words. You can write these down. This is the key to your evangelistic witness. You always need these three words. I don't know. Get those down. Because it scares you when you think that you might have to say, I don't know. Those are three of your mighty weapons. I don't know. So as soon as they hit that, the happier you should be. You know what? You're above my pay grade. What we need is a third party here or give me some time to do some research. So you get the advantage of one of two things. You either get to do some more research, which is basically how how I try to grow in my knowledge. The questions you all ask is my syllabus. That's That's my academic syllabus is whatever you're asking and whatever the world is asking. That's my syllabus. Let your friends' questions and needs be your syllabus of how you study the Bible and what things you're interested in. You're trying to be helpful, so you keep studying. That's number one advantage you gain. Number two advantage, you want to get some time with your pastor or your elders? Well, here's your opportunity. 
Just call them to lunch the next time. It'll be three of you. And listen to him answer these questions. And that's how I learned to answer some questions is listen to Ravi Zacharias answer some questions. He's the expert. I'll learn from him. That's the way we do it. So uh, first of all then, he has a very contextualized message. He's showing that God's presence is always with his people. Secondly, those who reject our message are the lawbreakers. Now in verse 41... Number one, what he's showing us is, is that this was Israel's historic sin. As your fathers did, so do you. This was Israel's historic sin. But notice that he not only says it's their historic sin, he says it's your sin. <laughs> this is where he gets himself in real trouble. <laughs> Stephen couldn't help himself. It's true. Look at verse 51. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Whoa! He's using Mosaic language. They're saying, you're breaking the customs of Moses. Stephen now takes up Moses' story, uses Moses' adjectives of the people of God, which are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. That's what Moses said about the people of God. That's exactly what Stephen says about the Sanhedrin. And he's right. He's right. Sometimes, if you're dealing with a woman at the well who's been married five times and the woman she lives with now is not her husband, you must be very tender, very indirect. You must ask questions instead of making statements. On the other hand, if you're dealing with a self-righteous, self-sufficient, arrogant, proud, aggressive man, you know, sometimes a missile is the best way to do it. <laughs> you know, if a Jehovah's Witness comes to my door, I'll answer their questions for about an hour and a half. And then we're going to turn around to their being stiff-necked, rebellious people who are not listening to the gospel because they're hardened. And you need some armor-piercing artillery every once in a while. And Stephen provides it. You're the ones in the wilderness who came under the judgment of God. Wow. Okay. Secondly, he shows them in verse 52... The rejection of Jesus is worse now than it was then. He says about them, they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. But you are now betraying and murdering the one who's not to come. He has come. So they sinned against the righteous one before he got here. You sinned against the righteous one after he got here. You betrayed and killed him. Gentlemen, I, I'm not suggesting we use this uh, as our most popular model of evangelism. Because a lot of the times we're speaking to the woman at the well. There's no reason to beat someone over the head who already knows and is in despair over their own sin and broken life. And you don't find Jesus talking this way to anybody but the Pharisees. And I suspect Stephen wouldn't have talked to the woman at the well this way either. So let's be careful that we not misapply Notice the key thing here is that Stephen is contextualizing his gospel message in the environment to the audience to whom he's speaking. That's the, what we want to learn from this. But here he's making it very clear, isn't he? That the reason you need to listen to what I'm saying is that you have guilt in your life. And the one thing a self-righteous person tries to do is to deal with their guilt. And the reason they're self-righteous is because they feel guilty inside, way down deep in here. And they cover it up with either performance or denial of guilt, 
A person who really is guilt-ridden will often be the last person you can ever approach with a criticism. And the reason is, if he takes your criticism seriously, it just obliterates him. It destroys him. His daddy always told him he was a crumb. And if he admits that what you're saying is true, he just dissolves like he did when he was a six-year-old boy. And he resolved at 15, I'm not doing that again. So that's what you're dealing with. It's called reactive uh, uh, guilt. Uh, what do you call this? Uh, somebody who can help me in psychology here. Uh, reactive formation. That's what it's called. Reactive formation. That in your guilt, you act as though the last thing you are is guilty. And here Stephen is at least trying to address that. And he's saying, gentlemen, you're not going to get away from the concept that you're guilty for your sin. And it needs, you need to understand that's why you need a Savior. It's because without Him, you are undone. Your life is destroyed. You will be miserable for an eternity. You desperately need help. And the Messiah has granted amnesty to all of us who put our hands to His crucifixion. Amnesty. Not just amnesty. Adoption. As His brothers in the family. We become sons of God. That's the offer until He comes back again. Please receive the offer. But you can't receive the offer if you don't understand what you've done and what your sins have done. So that's what Stephen is doing. Then thirdly, you'll notice uh, verse 53, rejection of Jesus is disobedience to the law. This is the irony of what the Sanhedrin is doing. They're claiming Stephen is rejecting the law of Moses. Stephen is saying, the one who's breaking the law of Moses is you because you're rejecting the one that Moses spoke about. See how Stephen puts it in verse 53. You have received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Now, when this happens, they were enraged. And we move to the, to the third section here. And that is, Christ's witnesses must be faithful unto death. Christ's witnesses must be faithful unto death. Because that's what happens to him. First of all, uh, verses 54 through 56, let's see how Stephen goes through this. We are encouraged by Jesus. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. But when Stephen saw him, he stood up. And a lot of commentators suggest that Jesus was showing his love and his honor given to Stephen. The name Stephen means crown. And Stephen receives a crown of glory. And Jesus stands up for him. I don't know if you've seen this in graduation exercises, but in some places, my, the seminary I graduated from, if you were a cum laude, the faculty would applaud for you when you received your diploma. If you're a magna cum laude, they might applaud a little bit more. If you're a summa cum laude, they would give you a standing ovation. And they were on the stage. So you've seen that sometimes, how your faculty will honor you when you reach certain achievements. Jesus honored Stephen here, and He will you too. Every time you're faithful, even unto death. Secondly, we petition Jesus. Verses 57 through 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then thirdly, see, we emulate Jesus. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And what you want to notice here, of course, is that as we die and suffer for the gospel, we emulate Jesus Christ. 
That's what Stephen was doing. Jesus said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. It's exactly what Stephen said to Jesus. Jesus' first words from the cross, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. That's exactly what Stephen said to the people around him. So we die as Jesus died. We suffer as he suffered. That's our model. That's what Stephen is doing. You see how he's taken up with Christ? So he's bold to say what needs to be said. He's willing to lay down his life for what needs to be said out of love for his hearers and out of real love for Jesus Christ. And he has his focus on Christ. That's the answer. That's the reason he sees him standing at the right hand of God. He's got his focus on Christ. Let me tell you something else. Christ has got his focus on Stephen. The two of them are working together. And that's what it means to be Christ's witness. Now lastly, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8. Let's read these and we'll close. Luke says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I want you to notice this in verses 1 through 3. The death of Christ's witnesses builds the church. It does, gentlemen. The death of Christ's witnesses builds the church. As the early fathers of the church said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Without our willingness to die, there is no gospel message because the gospel message is so important, it demands our life. If it doesn't demand your life, it's not as important as you claim it is. And therefore, people know it's, we're hypocritical messengers. The only way we can truly bear the message is to take the gravity of the message onto ourselves and realize it demands our lives. Look what happens in building the church. A, future leaders are prepared. Future leaders are prepared. Saul saw it all. How do you think Luke got this information? Why do you think Luke put it in Acts? Because Saul told him. Told him. They traveled together. Luke was in prison with Paul. And Paul said to Luke, Luke, let me tell you how I got converted. The first thing I saw was a man whose face was radiant and who stood up for the message of Jesus Christ. And I was raging against the church, but I'll never forget the look on his face. And I'll never forget the message he preached. And that conviction stayed in my heart until I saw Jesus Christ myself. I can hear Paul telling Luke all about that. And you notice Luke slips Paul, Saul in here to be sure that we understand. God is at work when you're suffering in ways you have no idea that is happening. Stephen had no idea that Saul was in the audience. Stephen had no idea the consequences of his faithfulness to Christ. But he built the foundation for the apostolic ministry to the rest of the world by being faithful to death right here with his long, boring sermon. And then secondly, the church is scattered. And we'll see more of this next week. So we're afraid. We're gathered up in our little church building. We don't want to get out. The world is cruel and violent. We don't get out. Well, guess what? Things are going to happen so that you get out. Why? The gospel must get out, and we're the ones to take it. If we don't go by our own will, we'll go when the church gets persecuted and get the message out to the world. That's God's plan. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for making us witnesses. And today, please embolden us with love and mercy and truth and courage that we may be the faithful witnesses that communicate Christ to the world around us. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Bless you.